Folks, let's go ahead and begin. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and hopefully some other folks will be trickling in here, but I want to reward you all for being on time. So let's pray. Lord God, on this beautiful Sunday morning, we give you thanks uh, for who you are and for what you've done for us in the life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and certain coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, Guide me today as I lead this class. Uh, may what I say build up everyone's faith here. Uh, Lord, we pray for our world as we are, the, the banter is that we're edging toward a nuclear war. Lord, I pray that you would regenerate the hearts of Vladimir Putin, President Xi of China, uh, Kim Jong-un of North Korea, and our own president, that they would begin to see life, their own lives and the world through the lens of the cross, rather than the, through the lens of the lust for power. I pray that you would avert anything like that, Lord. And we pray for our nation as we find ourselves underwater economically and with the border crisis and everything else. Uh, Lord, may this remind us that um, those are not the most important things in life that a relationship with you is um, and help us to use these things to just drive us into further dependence upon you as our Lord and Savior, as the provider of everything we need. We pray for your church around the world, particularly where it's persecuted and that you redeem any persecution and use it to refine your church. We give you thanks and praise that the, the, the fastest growing church in the world is the church in Iran with no seminaries, no missionaries, uh, Muslims seeing visions and dreams of Jesus and coming to faith in Christ and the church has had to go underground, but it's, it's burgeoning and may that change the face of Iran forever and somehow actually turn Iran into an ally of our nation. And Lord, we pray for our congregation here, First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. Thank you for your faithfulness to us over 175 plus years. And we pray that you would uh, continue to have your hand upon this congregation, that we would remain faithful until your return one day. And so, Lord, we're, we're grateful to be here, grateful to be alive. Uh, may what we do today take us all deeper in our walks with Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we uh, talked about the controversial clause in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. And we talked a little bit about what hell might be or is or isn't. Um, one of my favorite stories about hell, and I think, it's a, I, I think about it all the time, because you and I should never want anyone to go to hell. I mean, if hell really is what it is, you wouldn't want your worst enemy, so to speak, to go there. And uh, I don't know if this story is true, but it's a great story. And I tell it to myself all the time to remind me to stay gracious. Uh, the story is about a young Scottish pastor. He'd only been ordained a few months, and he was walking on the moors on a Sunday afternoon, and he ran into the old, wizened, Scottish Presbyterian pastor from the next village over. And the old man said to the young pastor, Hey, laddie, what did you preach on today? 
And the young pastor said, I preached on hell. And the old pastor said, hey, laddie, did you do it with tears in your eyes? Did you do it with tears? In your eyes? I, that helps me remember, you, you know, we don't want anyone to go to hell. Hell's real. I wish it wasn't. Um, but anyway. Today we're going to look at that clause of the creed, which really deals with three things. The resurrection of Christ, his ascension, and his second coming. It's, it's really interesting, you know, I've, the, the creed is constructed uh, in a very concise way. You know, I, I said the other week, it jumps immediately from Christ's birth to his suffering and death. And, you know, leaves out basically 30 years of all the miracles and teachings and everything else. That's because the writers of the creed believe that the most important thing about our faith is what Jesus, who he is, and what he did for you and me, um, over and against uh, what he taught. Those are important, but you'll run into people who say, well, I don't believe Christ was God, but I think what's important is his teachings. As long as you follow those, you're kind of in. Now, the writers of the Creed want to say, no, it's all about who Jesus is and what he went through for us. So it, it jumps to, from his birth to the passion of Christ, which includes his suffering and death. And the Gospels, it takes its cue, the Creed takes its cue from Scripture. That's what Scripture, the four Gospels do. 20% of each of the Gospels is spent on the passion of Christ. Um, seemingly in, in, in an inordinate way, because there's a lot more to Christ's life than that. But it, it wants to emphasize that that's what is at the heart, the center, the foundation of our faith. It's the passion including the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and so uh, what we're going to do is look at three things. In, in the, the Gospels cover all of Christ's life, but they major in just on th three days. 20% uh, of the Gospels focuses in on the parts of three days, part of for all day Friday, all day Saturday, and part of Sunday as he's crucified, and uh, then the resurrection. And so the creed wants to follow that clue. And um, so let's take a look at uh, these three things. The creed says that um, on the third day, see, there's that clue. It's interested in these three days. On the third day, he rose again, from the dead. And when the creed talks about the resurrection of Christ, and when scripture talks about the resurrection of Christ, I hate to have to say this, but in the climate of the church today, I never say resurrection without putting the adjective bodily in front of it. The Bible knows nothing of just a, a spiritual resurrection of Christ. The creed knows nothing of that. It's talking about a physical, bodily resurrection. I'm going to talk a little bit more about why that has to be. Uh, it has to be bodily. I remember back in the 80s, uh, Gary Dennis, who's the pastor of Westlake Hills Pres in Austin, asked me if I would come up and, and preach. And I said, sure. And so they put me up in a hotel there. And Sunday morning, I was getting dressed, and I just flipped on the TV, and there was one of those 
Sunday morning programs. It was a religious program, and it was a debate. They had a moderator, and they had a debate between an Orthodox Jewish rabbi and a Christian theologian named Gerald Sloyan. I remember his name. He's a Roman Catholic on the faculty of Temple University in Philadelphia. So they're going to de- they were having a debate on the bodily resurrection of Christ. <laughs> the Orthodox Jewish rabbi arguing for the bodily resurrection, the necessity of that. And Gerald Sloyan, the Christian, saying it didn't have to be bodily and probably wasn't. And I was going, whoa, what's going on? And the, Jew, the Orthodox Jewish rabbi explained he did not believe Jesus was God. But he believed Jesus was a great prophet, and God was making a point as to his power and the importance of who Jesus was by raising him bodily from the grave. And it was, they went back and forth. I thought, man, man bites dog here. Uh, unfortunately, that, <laughs> there are a lot of people who say they're Christians. I think I told the story last week. I preached a sermon from that pulpit over there. And I began by saying if they could conclusively, beyond the shadow of a doubt, produce the bones of Jesus Christ in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, I would renounce my faith and go you know, do something else. And there was a, a, a Methodist, former Methodist minister in the choir who had demitted his ordination. I think he'd lost his faith. He wrote me this scathing letter how awful that was and that the resurrection didn't have to be bodily. The important thing was that God rejuvenated the faith in the apostles' hearts and Okay, yeah. uh, I still stand by uh, that statement. Um, it's a bodily, physical, material resurrection that the creed is affirming, that scripture affirms. Um, that whole idea of a spiritual resurrection really came about, I mean, it's kind of always been there, but really kind of peaked in the 19th century with German rationalism that captured the seminaries in Germany and that was imported over to the US in the early part of the 20th century and led to the rise of liberalism in the mainline denominations here in um, the states. When I was in seminary my my mentor was Dr. John Leith and a great reformed theologian and I decided I wanted to do an independent study with him. And I approached him and said, could I do that? He said, sure. And he said, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to pick a liberal theologian, read everything you can find by him, and figure out what makes him tick, how he thinks, how he got there, and what are the ramifications of that Uh, are for his faith and for our faith. And I was kind of shocked. Why why do you want me to look at a liberal theology? He said, because I want you to know how the other side thinks. I want you, unless you understand, um, that's the best defense. So I I chose Rudolf Bultmann, who was a famous German theologian in, uh, in the early 20th century. And Bultmann... He, he was really a nice guy, and I came to respect him. Uh, he was brilliant, but he had bought into this 19th century rationalism, which kind of enlightenment uh, thinking that says the universe is closed, 
therefore miracles, you know, those, those are superstitions. There's no such thing as miracles. So he became famous for demythologizing the New Testament. He, and here's why he really had a heart for people coming to Christ. But he thought in this scientific age, we can't expect people to believe all this, you know, stuff. Uh, miracles, people are not going to buy that. And so he really wanted people to come to Christ. And I read a book of his sermons. They were fabulous. Every sermon ended with a call to commit your life to Christ. He was called the Billy Graham of Germany. But who was the Christ he was calling people to? It was not a Christ that walked on water. It was not a Christ who could turn water into wine or raise somebody from the dead. It was not a Christ who was even God. Boltmann, that idea of God actually taking on human flesh while remaining deity, that's, that's one of those myths that needed to go. So uh, Boltmann uh, and Karl Barth and Boltmann clashed all the time. And uh, so, but he really wanted people to come to Christ. <laughs> there was no there there when you came to Christ. Um, and I've had people challenge me on this whole idea that it, it's got to be a bodily resurrection. Don't believe anything I say unless it lines up with the Word of God. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing at the end of uh, his first letter to the Corinthians after he really reams them out for a whole bunch of stuff because uh, they were, I call that first Californians, uh, that book. Uh, they were, you name it, you think, sometimes people come to me and they say, you know, Ron, the thing is we need to get back to being like the first century church. I always go, no, no, obviously you've never read the New Testament. Because the first century church was beset from day one with heresies, conflicts, division. They were, they were human beings. They were backbiting each other. And, um, and so the Corinthians were just kind of a normal congregation, I guess, in one sense. But Paul ends his letter by, above everything else, he wants them to understand that Jesus' resurrection was a physical, bodily Flesh and bone resurrection, not something else. And he spends the whole 15th chapter, which is a lengthy chapter, hammering, hammering, hammering that home. I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from that. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, look at verses 3 through 8. Here's what, here's what Paul, Paul says. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance, not eighth importance or second, above everything else, first importance, what I also receive. And Paul's saying here, this is not something I figured out that I heard the apostles talk about this. And I figured, oh, it must be a bodily resurrection. What I receive, what is he saying there? Remember how Paul disappears for 14 years in the Arabian desert? What was going on there? We don't know. He doesn't clearly say this is what happened, but most theologians believe Christ who appeared to him on the Damascus Road, continually appeared to Paul and basically discipled him, poured into Paul the heart of the faith. So he's saying, my faith 
in Christ's body resurrection is something I receive from outside of myself. You know, the resurrection is not something anybody would ever come up with. Nobody was expecting that. Uh, even though Jesus predicted it, nobody expected that to happen. Um, really. So he says, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's his way of saying it. You can check it out with these others. You know, these are, these are not isolated hallucinations. He appeared to 500 people at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Then if you look at verses 12 through 19, he goes on to say, apparently some of the Corinthians didn't believe in a bodily resurrection. So he says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For, the dead are not ra for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. Paul saying the whole Christian faith rises or falls on whether or not Jesus was really bodily raised from the dead. Um, and this is to, over and against a heresy that has plagued the church from day one and still around today, the heresy of Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed that the most important thing in life was spiritual in nature. Um, hardcore Gnostics who believe in God didn't even believe God created the, the material creation. They thought that was done by a demigod. They thought materiality was bad. Gnostics believed the human body was, was bad. Um, that your goal, and Plato was a Gnostic. He believed the goal was that we shed these bodies and then soar, you know, as a spirit and become one with whatever God is. And that crept into the Christian church, and a lot of Christians bought into that. The whole idea of Gnosticism. And uh, remember I talked early on about um, God is a wild materialist. Uh, he he's, loves matter. Uh, and all the scientific uh, studies, the Hubble telescope, and now the James Webb telescope is revealing to us just how wild and crazy God is about mm, uh, material, atoms and electrons and protons. He's created billions of galaxies that contain 
trillions of stars and planets. I mean, there's the materiality of the universe is unbelievable. And then, over and against Gnosticism, and see, the Gnostics couldn't buy this idea about Jesus really being God, because the Christian faith says this infinite, eternal God defies all of the laws of anything and everything and actually enters into his creation and takes on the form of a human being, real flesh and blood in the body of Christ. He becomes man without becoming unlike himself as God. And that is, C.S. Lewis says, that's the miracle of miracles, that the infinite God could be incarnate and become fully God and fully man in the person of, of Jesus Christ. So you have this, the incarnation is all about the materiality now of God in the person of Christ. And I did, I did a, a lecture in here back in the last fall on the incarnation and how the incarnation never ends. Uh, Jesus takes on flesh. I raise the question, when does he give it up? When does Jesus give up being a flesh and blood, fully God, fully human being? Well, he dies on the cross. His flesh dies. But the incarnation goes on. God raises him materially. materially and a bodily resurrection. So what the apostles and the women at the tomb... What they encounter is not some spirit. They encounter in the upper room. Thomas is not there. Then a week later, Thomas appears, and they've said, Jesus is alive. He's real. Flesh me. That doesn't happen. You people back then didn't believe that people rose from the dead any more than we believe that now. So Thomas is like, oh, come on. I'm not going to believe till I feel him, see the scars. And so all of a sudden, Jesus appears and goes, hey, Thomas, check this out. Stick your hand in here. Feel the spear scab or whatever is there. And what's Thomas' reaction? My Lord and my God bows in worship. So you have this material, physical resurrection. The incarnation doesn't end there. Let's move into the ascension. When Jesus is... Let me ask you this question. When we talk about the ascension... How many ascensions were there? Most of you think one. And maybe you're right. But there are theologians who kick this around. You can't really answer it, you know, 100%. But, okay, remember Jesus appears and says he disappears. And then he appears again. He dis Where did Jesus go every time he disappeared? Did he run and hide in the bushes somewhere? Or, you know, had a cabin out in the woods where he hid out and then he'd appear? Something, you can't prove it, but it kind of makes sense. Maybe he went back to the Father and then came back again and appeared. And came back. There's nothing in Scripture that affirms that or denies that. I think it's just kind of an interesting thing to kick around. Um, but the, when we talk about the ascension of Christ, we're talking about the final ascension of Christ. There was a day when he left terra firma, not for good, but for a while. 
And the apostles witnessed that. And remember what the angel tells them? Why are you looking up? Get to work. And he's going to come back just as you saw him go. Our ascension window in the chancel there. You can make the argument. Is that the ascension or the second coming? If he's going to return just like he went. And you can't really tell from there. Is he coming down or is he going up? That's supposed to be him ascending. But does the incarnation end with the ascension? No, no. It's the bodily ascension of Christ. And here's what's really important. And our Eastern Orthodox brethren and sisters have educated me on this. It's sort of the ascension's the flip side of the incarnation. With the incarnation, you have God taking on human, entering time and space and taking on human flesh, <coughs> honoring our flesh. You know, I like to say our human flesh is a, a uniform Jesus was not ashamed to wear. But neither does he give it up. And the Eastern Orthodox emphasize the ascension much more than we do. Because they rightly remind us that the ascension is an elevation of our human flesh into eternity. And it's, it's a clue, an important clue, as to what's going to happen to our earthly flesh. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But let's, uh, let's delve down into... Uh, the ascension. The, the creed wants us to know that at his ascension he then sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What does that mean? Back in the first century if a ruler asked you to sit at his right hand that's the most important seat other than being on the ultimate throne. That was a way of honoring someone. That's a way of saying this person has um, really all the authority that I have. And it's, it's a way that, for the creed to emphasize that when Jesus ascends, uh, he takes on the role of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God the Father, um, you know, he, he, Jesus really runs, runs things. Um, and that he's the most important being in the universe. Um, so, let's then gravitate into the second coming. Because it says, he will come to one day to judge the quick and the dead. I remember when I was taking confirmation, you know, quick's not a word we use in relation to what the creed's talking about. We talk about Quick means you're fast, you know. Quick means you're alive. That's what, simply what it means. I remember whoever taught my confirmation class said something like, uh, this is a reminder that as you're crossing the street, you better be quick or you'll be dead. Okay. But he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. So how does the incarnation play into that? Jesus is not going to return as a spook, as a spirit, he's going to return. Westminster Confession of Faith says personally, bodily, um, and we will have no doubt who he is. When Jesus, in the incarnation, the original incarnation, 
People doubted who this guy was. Some accepted him, some didn't. Second time around, uh, the Bible makes clear nobody will mistake who Jesus is. In fact, Paul says there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus as Lord. There will be no doubt. And he's going to come to judge the quick and the dead, meaning those who are still alive on planet Earth at the time and those who have, who have died. There will be, the creed's talking here about a final day of judgment when uh, everyone will stand before the judgment bar of Almighty God. I think I've, I, I, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but, um, you know, I, I used to say there's only one way to God, and that's Jesus. And then my first week at Highland Park Press, my predecessor died, Clayton Bell. And he was my first funeral. I didn't even know where my light switch was in my office. And suddenly I'm having to do his funeral and TV and radio stations are interviewing me. And of course, Clayton's brother-in-law is Billy Graham. So the Graham family was all coming and I'm like, get me out of here. And... Uh, so I decided to preach on John 14, 1 through 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father by me. And I, it was my way of saying, look, it, I know Clayton believed there's only one way to God. I want the congregation to know that's what I believe. This is a great time to affirm that in case they have any doubts about their new pastor. So I preached that. And then Clayton's sister, Virginia Somerville, comes up to me in the fellowship hall afterwards and goes, I was so hoping that the new pastor, after my brother, would be a, a Bible-believing pastor. I'm like, what? I thought, wait a minute, she's baiting me. I, and she was, she's a wonderful, gracious lady. She was just yanking my chain. She said, well, you said something very unbiblical in there. I said, what? She said, you said Jesus is the only way to God. Ah, uh, she's trying to trap me. Yes, that's what I said, and I believe that. She said, well, that's wrong, biblically wrong. She takes me in 2 Corinthians and shows me. It says, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. And she said, wrong. All roads do lead to God. Or no road. You don't take any road. Everyone will wind up in the same place at the judgment seat of God. I got in the pulpit the next Sunday and apologized and t told that story and said, I no longer believe Jesus is the only way to God. But I believe he's the only way past the judgment seat. That's what Jesus is saying, that no one comes to the Father except by me. Um, and that's what she believed, and we chuckled about that. And that's true. There's going to be a, a final judgment. Do you need to be afraid of that? Do I need to be afraid of that judgment? This is important. Too many Christians are running around with unnecessary fears. Do you need to... Be afraid about, what if Christ returned this afternoon? Would that just generate fear or joy or what in your heart? If you're a believing Christian who's really given your life to Jesus Christ, if you really believe the creed, you believe the Bible is the word of God, you should have no fear whatsoever about standing before the judgment seat of God. Why? What, what are Jesus' last words on the cross? 
There are three words. <laughs> it is finished. All the condemnation, all the punishment, whatever you want to call it, that you and I deserve for who we are and what we've done and haven't done, that all, your sin in its totality, not in part, but the whole, came upon Christ. And he descended into hell, went to hell on the cross, whatever that means, being forsaken by God, separated from God, the cosmic where he sucks in all the sin. And so you'll be declared not guilty. I've heard some people say it's going to be court, sort of like a courtroom scene where God the Father will be the judge. You'll be in the, the dock there in the witness box or whatever, the, the defendant's box. Satan will step forward as a prosecuting attorney and say, look at this. Roll that video footage on the life of Ron Skate. And I'll be there going, oh. And then they'll, he'll lay it all out. And then, but my defense attorney is Jesus. He'll step forward and say, Your Honor, he's guilty. But I've taken every bit of his just punishment, blah, 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 upon myself. I have paid the price. Not guilty. Not guilty. If you haven't accepted Christ, you're in a heap of trouble. Um, let me just say that. So he's going to come back, the creed wants us to know, to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, what about the, the dead? You know, I, I hope I'm alive in Christ returns. I like to skip the whole dying thing. The old Woody Allen saying, you know, he says, I'm not really afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And that's kind of me. I'd like to skip that and have Christ appear, you know, do a, an Enoch kind of thing where I'm translated right up. Uh, I don't kick the bucket. That'd be nice. But I, don't, I can't tell you when the second coming is going to happen. It could happen before we finish this class. It could be five billion years from now. I, I don't know. Jesus said we're not to speculate about when Christ is going to return. We're not really to speculate about even how he is going to return. Christians have gouged each other's eyes out for 2,000 years ago, not about just when he's going to return, but how he's going to return. So you have camps of premillennialists. I'll explain what that is in a moment. Or postmillennialists. Or amillennialists. Premillennialists believe that there's going to be this millennium, a thousand, literal thousand year period of time where it's, it's, things are just great on the earth, like the church is raising up to the top and most people become Christians. And that Christ is going to return pre that and kind of hang out with the folks here on earth for a thousand years. That would be kind of cool. Um, and I can take you selectively through Scripture and you'd go, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. But I also can take you selectively through Scripture and have you come out thinking, oh, it's post-millennial that this thousand years is going to happen and then Christ is going to come after that. And that's going to be the rapture when you're, you know, believers are raptured up into heaven. Um, anytime 
scripture's not clear and it seems to be pushing against itself, it's probably wise not to come down too hard on either side and plant both feet there. Um, a third position, which is what most Reformed theology gravitates toward, although Jonathan Edwards, man, he was a diehard post-millennialist. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying if you're pre-millennialist, that's bad. That's kind of Dallas Seminary majors in that. It's a great seminary. I know professors there. Uh, post-millennial, Jonathan Edwards, I'm one of his fans. So I've taken, it may sound like I'm weaning out of things, but there's a position called millennial, which says basically that it could be that this is not a literal 1,000 years. It might be symbolic. Um, but I've kind of pushed that aside. I call myself now pro-millennial. I'm for it, however it happens. Uh, Tony Campolo, who we had come here at least twice when I was an associate pastor, he used to say, I love this, he says, you know, I'm on the welcoming committee, not on the planning committee when it, when it comes to the second coming. Jesus says, you're not to speculate about this. Even I don't, only the Father knows when I'm going to return. That ought to shut people up. You know, I, when I was a pastor in Dallas, there's a, there a great Reformed theologian in the U.S. called uh, Harold Camping. And suddenly he announced to the world that he, he's come up with the date that Christ is going to return. It shocked everybody because this guy was a real good guy. And I remember driving down to San Antonio for something, and there was a billboard somewhere on I-35. It had the date. I think it was August something, 2004 or something like that, when Jesus was going to return. And I mean, all these people gathered around him and poured money into his thing, and they put advertising all over the world. And of course, the date went, and nothing happened. And what do you, what do, you do when you predict a date like that and it doesn't happen? You go back and say, oh, I got a decimal point in the wrong place. And he comes out with a, you know, a new date for 2012 or something like that. Of course, that goes by. And then, uh, bless his heart, he repented. He said, I don't know what got in me. I should have never done this. Jesus says we're not to do it. I was wrong. I was sinful. And so he came to his senses, thank goodness. Jehovah's Witnesses, that, that comes out of, uh, Paul and I were talking about this the other day, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Seventh-day Adventists some Seventh-day Adventists are good. Uh, ben Carson is a Seventh-day Adventist. There's an evangelical, biblical wing of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Ben Carson's in that. The chaplain of the U.S. Senate. His last name's Black. Uh, I can't remember his first name. He's solid. But there's some weird Seventh-day Adventist Mormons, just look, and Jehovah's Witnesses. But they all rose up in the U.S. about the same time. Now, I can't prove it. I have my theory why that was so. In the, it was in the 19th century, all these groups rise up. In the 19th century, the, the mainstream Christian church in America was not preaching on the second coming of Christ. For whatever reason. They just weren't. You can't find hardly any sermons anywhere on the second coming. Wherever there's a vacuum something always rushes in to fill a vacuum. So you have the Mormons. They were big on this 
Second Coming, the Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, church I pastor in Baltimore, Central Prez, on York Road, which is kind of like Broadway, cuts right through the middle of Baltimore. About a mile south of our church, is this beautiful Gothic Presbyterian church called Govins Presbyterian Church. And I got to know the pastor there, and I said, and it was in a start church. My church started in 19, well, mine started in 1853, but a different location. Uh, I said, when, did, when was this church planted? <laughs> he laughed, and he said, 1843 or something like that. Um, there was a farmer owned all this land and where the church now is, and he became a Jehovah's Witness. And, of course, they predicted the day that Christ was going to return. So they gave away all their possessions and put on white robes and gathered somewhere. And of course, the day came and went. But, but before the day came, he gave the land to a Presbyterian friend of his, and the Presbyterian gave it to the Presbytery to plant a church there. So that's why that church... And, you know, the day came and went with Jehovah's Witnesses. So they redid it and made another day, and that didn't happen. And they finally came up with the idea that, well, what really happens is Christ uh, entered a different place in heaven. Or, you know, it's just... I find it really curious. If you ever drive by a kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses, try to break one of their windows. It's impossible. Why are the windows this thick? There are no windows in every Jehovah's Witness building. I think that makes an architectural theological statement. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is, but it's not good. So, plus, I like to. I had Jehovah's Witness knock on my door in Baltimore, and uh, I said, "Look, it, I, I don't want to talk to you right now, but." He was the head of a kingdom hall not far away. I said, can I come into your office and you and I sit down and have a discussion? He said, okay. And we set a date, and I went there. And lo and behold, I walk in the room, and there's like 30 uh, young men. They were like students. It was like a seminary. And I thought, oh, this is good. I'm going to get to and." So I debated this guy for probably an hour. It was so easy. I read up, and, and the first thing, the blockbuster I dropped on him that they couldn't, it just blew him out of the water, is I said, did you know that Jehovah's not even a real word? What do you mean? We're Jehovah's Witness. I said, and I don't like using this word, but it's, it's a bastard word. The tetragrammaton, the Hebrew four letters, that uh, God reveals himself to Moses with these, uh, and it, it's the, the form of the Hebrew verb to be. I am, I am what I am. Uh, but Hebrew, the letters are all consonants in Hebrew. There are no vowels. You have vowel points underneath the letters. But the tetragrammaton has no vowels. So nobody really knows how you pronounce that Yahweh or something like that is probably the closest we can come. The Orthodox Jews do not pronounce it. They say Adonai, Lord, because they think we're not good enough to pronounce the real name of God. So when people got into Bible translation, um, back in really the, about the 18th century, 
the idea we need to translate the Bible for all races so they can read the Word of God for themselves in their own heart language. The first dilemma was, what do we do with this word Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the four consonants? And some brilliant guy thought, why don't we slide the vowel points under the word Adonai, means Lord, slide those under and see what happens. You come up with the word Jehovah. So the word Jehovah is a, a man-made word by <laughs> some Bible translators back in the 18th century. Well, and I said, look it up. I said, go to the library. The one internet wasn't going on then. And I never heard back from him. But one of the students grabbed me in the parking lot afterwards and said, I've never heard any of this stuff. Of course, they don't believe Jesus was God either, God in the flesh. And he said, can I come to your church? I said, sure. He's a young black man. I never saw him ever after that. But uh, anyway, talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. Say, I'll take your literature. You ought to always should have a stack of basic Christianity by John Stott. You can buy them by the case for about $1.50 a piece. And say, you read this, and I'll read your stuff. And don't worry, you're not going to be affected by their stuff. It's so hokey. Same with Mormons. Um, bless their hearts. I have a friend, Richard Mao, who's the former president of Fuller Seminary. He's been discipling one of the 12 apostles of the Mormons, who's come to the point, he tells me, that the guy doesn't believe Mormonism is true. He can't come out in public yet, just like some of the royal family in Saudi Arabia have come to Christ, but they can't come out. Or else, so there are Mormons who, are, when they really see their whole theology, they go, this is crazy. And many of them are moving toward Christ. So talk to your Mormon friends and be a gracious witness to them, Jehovah's Witness. Um, so um, Christ was bodily raised from the dead. That's what the creed wants you and me to know. That he bodily ascended to he heaven, elevating our human flesh. And he will bodily return one day. And that's, you know, that will be time will cease. History will come to an end. And Christ's kingdom will come in all of its fullness and glory. But he's going to come back bodily. And so, and here's a, here's a thing I kind of wrestle with. And, you know, and I have to look through the lens of I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Okay, Jesus never gives up his human flesh. There's an indication that we will dwell with Christ in eternity. And the implications for us is Paul says Christ's bodily resurrection is the first fruits of a whole train of his chosen ones who will come after him. So if you and I are dead when Christ returns, spiritually we will be with the Lord in heaven consciously. But we will not have bodies. But God never designed a human being to be a spirit separated from a physical body. And so at the return of Christ, we will be reunited, our spirit will be reunited with flesh and bone, material bodies like Christ's body. He's the first fruit. We'll be able to recognize each other. What age will we be? I don't know. I said, I guess we're all going to be 30, because that's when Jesus died. I don't know. I have a daughter who died at age two and a half. I only know her as a two and a half year old. Will I recognize her in heaven? Will, what age will she be? I'm not sure. But we will have bodies like Christ. 
But there's, they're the, there's a sameness, but also a big difference to our pre-return of Christ bodies. Just like Jesus' pre-resurrection body was the same yet different than his post-resurrection body. What am I saying? You know, in English class in seventh grade, you learn to do comparison and contrast. Um, comparison, I mean, what, what are the things that are the same? What's the, what are some of the things that were the same about Jesus' body pre- and post-resurrection? Throw out some things. You could touch them, you could feel them. Yeah, and Jesus even says, come here, feel me. Give me something to eat. Give me a piece of fish. Ghosts, spooks, don't eat fish. So Jesus said, I'm, I'm real. I'm, you're not seeing a vision. What else were some similarities between his pre- and post-resurrection body? He kept the scars. Michael Card has a great song, known by the scar. We'll know Christ when he returns by the scar. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a consciousness of a relationship was not broken. And they recognize, I mean, they weren't going, who's this guy? His appearance apparently was the same. Um, so he ate, he drank, and ate. Okay, contrast. What are some differences between Christ's pre and post resurrection bodies? He could appear, remember all the doors and windows are locked and closed, all of a sudden, So apparently something happened where this post-resurrection material body was no longer totally uh, controlled by the laws of physics that we know. Um, what else was different? Apparently, he could change his appearance if he wanted to. I, people are trying to explain that, whether their eyes were swollen because they were crying, they didn't recognize. I don't know, but yeah, uh, he could kind of disguise himself. Um, and then suddenly, they were aware of who he is. Yeah, he didn't make a mass appearance, although it wasn't just to a few people, like Paul says, even 500 people at once. So that was, you know, psychologists talk about hallucinating. Uh, you don't hallucinate, 500 people don't hallucinate seeing the same thing at the same time. Um, any other differences? Well, I'll tell you. And this is good news, because this is going to be your body, too. A body no longer susceptible to disease and death. And Why can't we just go to heaven with these bodies? Theologians say probably because these bodies aren't built for heaven. They couldn't... Um, it's like if you took a, you know, a, a 1987... Plymouth out on the uh, Indianapolis 500 track and oh, I'm going to win the Indianapolis no you're not that car <laughs> ain't going to make it whatever, the glory the Shekinah glory of heaven and whatever else heaven is we're, you know, we're afraid of a nuclear attack that we'd be vaporized by a, a, a nuclear bomb 
Well, that's what would happen to you and me if suddenly we appeared in the unveiled glorious presence of the Holy Trinity without the right kind of body. <laughs> We'd just be vaporized. So there's an eternalness and indestructibility that fits us for heaven in these resurrection bodies. Otherwise, we'd be, we'd be toast. Um, my last presbytery meeting in Baltimore, Baltimore Presbytery, I affectionately called it Baltimore Presbytery. It's the most off the rails. Most of what was wrong in our previous denomination originated out of that presbytery. And out of one individual, who was the stated clerk of the presbytery, who was a good friend, Charles Forbes. And I'll never forget, he came up to me my last meeting, and it had ended, and I was heading out, and I was heading to Dallas. And he goes, Ron, we're really going to miss you. <laughs> I said, yeah, like a, a, like a, you know, sore tooth. He said, no, no. You always conducted yourself with grace. You never got, we did everything to try to make you mad and get you upset, and you never did. Um, and I said, well. And somehow I made a reference to, I said, uh, well, maybe I'll see you when Christ returns or something. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and said, you really believe that, don't you? This guy's an ordained elder. And I said, yeah, I do. He says, I don't, I said, you don't? No, of course not. Yeah. He said, you know, when we die, we die. And that's it. He was the stated clerk of Baltimore Presbytery. He, well, I'm not going to bless his heart. I don't know if he's still alive or not. But one day he's going to find out that's not true. And I thought, how sad that, you know, if I didn't believe in the resurrection and the second coming of Christ, I, I'd go sell shoes or something. No offense to shoe salesmen, but I'd go do something else than waste my time propagating myths. Um, so the creed wants you and me to be centered in the resurrection, ascension, and second coming. And these things are truth. You can't separate them from each other. You know, a resurrection, um, or the, you can't separate the, the crucifixion, the passion, from the resurrection. Uh, you know, the, if you try to do that, the, the crucifixion just becomes the death of a martyr. Um, if you try to separate the crucifixion from the resurrection, and just believe in the resurrection, but play down the crucifixion, then you have a great miracle, but you lose the whole essence of it is finished whatever it transacted on the cross and you can't separate the second coming from either of those things because you, you do that and you're left before the judgment seat of christ of god the father um romans 8 1 memorize that romans 8 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus Memorize it. Believe it. And that's how you can live by faith rather than fear. No place for fear in regards to God in the Christian life, except a healthy, reverent fear of who he is. So we don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit in the wind, you don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't trifle with Almighty God. But he's also the God who loves you, is Abba, not just judge, but Abba, Father. And he's done everything for you through the life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, and certain coming of Christ.
to provide for your eternal life with a resurrection body built for eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. It truly is good news. That death has lost its sting. Death never will have the last word. And that sin and evil uh, will never have the last word in the life of a believer either. That you have accomplished on the cross what we could not do and could never do for ourselves. That you've uh, done for us what needed to be done to ensure our eternal life with you. And so, Lord, help us to say thank you by obeying Jesus' command to take up our cross every day and follow him no matter where he leads, no matter what the price, even if it sh should cost us our lives. Uh, because that's worth it because of Jesus. And we make our prayer in his name. Amen.